guys have Bibles, um, please open them to 1 Corinthians 15. We're in, in verses 1 through 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be on the screen. Uh, I do recommend having a Bible. Um, you know, when, a, when builders build an arch, the last thing they put in is called the capstone. And what a capstone does is it doesn't just finish it off, it actually locks the rest of the arch into place so that all the other stones stay put. So the last thing on is actually what solidifies it. The, 1 Corinthians 15 is the capstone of the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the apex. This is the most important single chapter where Paul really ties the whole argument of the whole book together. And we're going to see that the capstone is the gospel itself. How does he lead this divided tire fire of a church back to, back to health and unity? It's by focusing finally and fully on the gospel. Please read with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Please pray with me. Jesus, I pray that the gospel would have the same effect on us as you intended it to have on the ancient Corinthians. That it would call us to health and wholeness, to unity and love. In Jesus' name, amen. A message might be true and a message might be beneficial but if we do not receive it it actually does us no good during the american revolution there was a turnaround battle called the battle of trenton and uh, george washington's army was starving freezing morale was low and trenton really turned things around now here's how it happened trenton was occupied by a british force and Washington planned what's very, very difficult, easily goes wrong, a surprise night attack. Look in history, these things never work, but he's going to try it because he's desperate. Now, the whole plan was actually blown because a farmer that's, that was loyal to the British saw them coming, saw them getting ready to attack, and he went to the British, who were all asleep, but he went and he found where the commander was, a guy named General Rawl, and General Rawl would not admit him in. You see, General Rawl was deep in a game of cards and did not want to be disturbed. And so the, the farmer wrote down the message. The message was delivered to General Rawl, who put it in his pocket. And they pulled it off of his dead body later. <laughs> he had the message, 
but he did not receive it. The message was true. The message was beneficial, but he refused to receive it, and so it did him no good. The gospel may be true. The gospel is beneficial. But if we do not receive it, it does us no good. We don't get the benefit of the message. A lot of us are carrying around a partial version of the gospel. A lot of the time, there's a partial gospel out there that people understand to be the Christian faith. And it goes like this. God would like you to have eternal life if you're good enough. Right? So it gets God in there. It gets that Jesus has something to do with this. But the way that you get to be right with God is by proving you deserve it. That is not receiving the whole gospel. And if that's your understanding of Christianity, can we please talk? Because that isn't it. There's another version of the gospel that is, that is receiving only part of it. It's sort of saying like, hey, let's not talk about the sin salvation thing. Let's just be nice. God wants us to basically be ethical creatures and, and then we're good. Right? Again, not receiving a major part of the gospel message or, or one that, that is probably most likely held by some of us. It's this partially received version of the gospel that says what Jesus does is make sure your soul is saved and goes to heaven. Right? Missing out on the whole redemption story of the gospel. Even those of us who say, who are familiar with what the Bible actually teaches about the gospel and have received it, we often receive part of it. We often forget parts of it. You know, we, we fall into some, some sin or problem. We say, oh, God's going to be so mad at me. Now we easily forget the gospel. We look around at the world. We look at the news and say, there's no hope for the world. What are we even doing? We easily forget the gospel. Paul is addressing a church in Corinth that has gotten sleepy on a lot of the gospel, gotten forgetful, and refused to receive part of it. And what he calls them to do at the beginning of this chapter, this ultimate chapter of 1 Corinthians, is to receive the whole gospel. Look with me at verse 1. He says, now, now lets you know he's starting a new section. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. That the word for remind you is a little tricky. Some of your translations, if you're looking at them, might say, I want to clarify for you. The idea is like, let's go over this again. <laughs> okay? Right? We seem to be forgetting the most basic part of this, the gospel. So let's go over it again. I want you to hear it and receive it again. Uh, now, what exactly were they not receiving? We, we actually don't see in this part of it. It comes to, in verse 12, we find out the part of the gospel that they had rejected. They, they believed Jesus died for their sin. They believed Jesus rose again. But they rejected the future resurrection of all of the saints, right? They didn't believe they were going to rise. Okay, so they believed Jesus rose, but didn't believe they were going to rise. And that's what Paul is trying to correct here. Now, why were they not receiving it? Well, there was a collection of Greek philosophies that say resurrection is a, no star, a non-starter, so possibly that. But for whatever reason, they had an incomplete gospel. And so Paul is calling them to receive the whole gospel. 
Now, why should they and we receive the whole gospel? It's because we need it. It's because we need God. It's because we need salvation, and we need reality. So receive the whole gospel because we need God, we need salvation, and we need reality. First of all, we need God. Now, I say that not from exactly what Paul is saying here, even though we're going to see that's where he goes. But here's how I know we need God. It's because every single one of us is asking questions, the answer to which can only be God. Right? We can't begin to answer these questions. These are nonsensical questions if there is no God. For instance, what's my purpose? If you've ever asked, if you're trying to figure out what your purpose is or why everything is here, if there is no God that created you for a purpose, you ask in vain. You're asking how is yellow round. You're asking a nonsensical question. Okay? We're asking questions about, well, how do I know what's right and what's wrong? Like, Without God, there is no actual basis for ethics. It's everybody kind of making up what they want to be right and wrong. It's based on personal taste. That doesn't work. That is not a basis for knowing the difference between right and wrong. You know, in our culture, it's famously secularizing in the West. Now, the rest of the world, that's not true. Those news stories that tell you that the world's becoming more secular is only focusing on the West. But... Though even in the West, I don't think that's true. There is still a longing for God. People just talk about God in an unknowable, distant fashion. The the word now we use is the universe, right? Like that is very, very common. We, We reach out, we cry out to an unknowable, unknown God that we wish were real, like by saying the universe, But here's the thing. Those of us who kind of have that point of view of, like, God is a mysterious force we call the universe, think about what the universe actually is, right? Uh, There's there's an Onion article that nails this. Universe feels zero connection to guy tripping on mushrooms. (laughs) Eugene, Oregon. Noting that it had yet to experience any sort of oneness with the 22-year-old, the universe confirmed Friday, Friday, that it felt absolutely zero connection to a local man currently tripping on hallucinogenic mushrooms. As far as I can tell, all the boundaries between myself and this guy remain completely intact. So I certainly wouldn't say that he and I have become one with each other at all, said the collection of all space and matter, which added that, if anything, it was feeling further removed from the man after he ate two grams of psychosyllabin mushrooms and spent the ensuing three hours just sitting on his basement couch, during which time he effectively did nothing to interact with the world or universe more broadly. Frankly, I feel like he and I are as separate and unconnected as we've always been. Sure, he seems like a decent person, but have we at some level blended together into a single cosmic entity, flowing through each other and commingling our energies? Definitely not. At press time, the guy's mind also confirmed that it was in no way expanding whatsoever. (laughs) But this, like, think about what we're actually saying. Like, when when we are going, you're going to hit a point in life where the chips are down, where you're facing a serious loss, a serious struggle, a serious pain, and you aren't going to cry out to the planet Venus or the Horsehead Nebula. Why? They don't care for you. When we are calling out 
to the universe and talking about there's something out there. It's because we need God. We desire God to be real. The thing is, is we don't need to call, we don't need to let God remain totally mysterious and unknown. You know why? Because the gospel shows us who God is. First of all, God is the gospel. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. He says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for us, for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and so on. The gospel isn't a bunch of cold propositional truths, okay? It's a person. It's a person who is God. The gospel, it, God is the gospel, if we want to begin knowing who God is, we begin with the gospel. We begin with what Jesus has done for us. Also, we see just through the gospel that God is not idle in the world. <laughs> you know, for those of us who look at, look at just the chaos of history, we see what's going on. Why don't I see the hand of God on this? We see the hand of God. We see the work of God. We see the mission of God in the gospel. Paul points this out where he says that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Meaning that throughout the Old Testament, there's a bunch of arrows pointing forward to Jesus. This is according to plan. God is doing something. He is not a distant, detached, static thing. God is the gospel and God is at work. And also... We see the gracious character of God in the gospel. Uh, the, Paul gets so personal here. You know, this doesn't sound like high-flown theology in verses 8 through, 8 through 10. Listen to what he says. He says, Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. English translations really soften that. The Greek is the word for an aborted fetus. He's saying, I was, I was a aborted fetus of a person. He's saying, that's how bad I was. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? Like, the, the life of Paul itself shows the gracious nature of God in the gospel. That God would take a self-described, you know, a horrific person and redeem him and transform him and use him for his purposes. Not because Paul was good. Not because there was some spark of, oh, you know, he's got a good heart under all that murdering people. It's because God is good. It's because God is gracious. Why do we need to receive the gospel? It's because we need God. The answer to these questions of what is my purpose? Why am I here? What hope is there? These are all indicating we need God. We can't help but cry out to something, and God is revealed and known in the gospel. But there's a problem. As soon as we start to have knowledge of a God who is holy, a God who is morally perfect, it starts to shine a light on issues. Like, if God is good, what, what's wrong with the world? 
what, what's going on? Why is the world so full of brokenness if its creator is good? And the answer to that is uncomfortable. There was um, about 130 years ago, Time Magazine did like a, they, 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 they solicited essays from the world's great minds. You know, smart people, write us essays answering the question, what is wrong with the world? Okay. And G.K. Chesterton, the Christian writer and, and thinker and reporter, he, he answered. He wrote, Dear sirs, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What he was trying to convey was that the problem isn't out there in the world, it's in here. What's wrong with the world? I'm going to say something that, that might seem wrong to some of you. The world is not fallen. The world is not broken. There is nothing broken about the Great Barrier Reef or a grizzly bear, right? The Rocky Mountains is not fallen. You know what's broken in the world? Human beings. If we actually think about it, the reason we look around and feel hopelessness, the reason that the world is full of war, destruction, racism, inequity, oppression, and the rest of it, poverty, is all the result of our sin. It's all the result of our living in disobedience to God. I know that that's an uncomfortable, unorthodox thing to say these days, you know, in the, in the age of self-esteem, you know, where anything that doesn't make me feel good is wrong. But here's what we can't argue with. Death. The result of sin. It's everywhere. And it waits for each and every one of us. The problem that each and every one of us have is sin and death. Now, we might say, hey, you know, there's a lack of education in the world. Yes, why is that? Because of sin. Hey, there's a lack of equity. Why is that? It's because of human sin. On and on. These are symptoms of our ultimate problems of sin and death. Now, there is two ways for God to remove sin from the world. To remove us would be one way. There would be a huge improvement for planet Earth if we were all gone. trying to get myself retweeted and become popular here. <laughs> or he could redeem us. And the good news of the gospel is that God has given us salvation. We need salvation from sin and from death. And the gospel is salvation from sin and death. If we look at verses 3 and 4, it says, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Think about what that's saying. The morally perfect Jesus, God in human flesh, went to a cross to solve our sin problem. That you and I could be forgiven. But not only that, in verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That he also is salvation from death. That Jesus paves a back door out of death, solving our death problem. And so how do we get this? The gospel is also the means of salvation. In verse 2, I know we're not going in order. I usually like to, but 
He says, this, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Okay? The, the idea that you've got to prove it to God that you're good enough is not true. The idea that you just need to merit this much and Jesus does the rest is not true. How do we lay hold of this salvation? How do we say yes to it? How do we receive the whole gospel? It's by believing. That is how. Why should we receive the whole gospel? It's because we, we need salvation. We need a solution to our sin and death problem. Now, so, some who are listening may be saying, that would be great. <laughs> All you're saying, uh, yeah, I wish there was a God like that, and I wish there was a solution to the sin and death problem, but, but is this real? Can it be real? And by the way, some of us who are thinking that are committed Christians. Every single one of us has a fear that our faith is in something not real. A long time ago, a guy named Bertrand Russell, who was a critic of the Christian faith, said that faith is believing in something without evidence. And by the way, if any of you guys are struggling with that, or if you aren't a Christian and would like to talk more about that, of like, hey, how do you even get there? I, my, my email's on the website. I love talking about this stuff with people. You can't offend me, all right? I, I want to make that an open invitation. I cannot read anybody's mind and say, oh, yeah, that person really needs to, to talk about this. Like, I'm not going to be, like, emailing all of you. Um, but here's the thing. The ancients were skeptical, too. But throughout, the Old throughout the New Testament, we see the writers of the New Testament trying to convince them of the reality of the faith. And this is no exception. Look, look at how Paul invites them to investigate this. In verse 5. He says, after, after Jesus was raised, he appeared to Kephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for dead. So he's, he's saying, hey, if you want to hear eyewitness testimony of the resurrection besides me, there's, there's hundreds of people still alive who probably did travel around to the churches saying, hey, we saw Jesus after the resurrection. Okay? Also, when we get, like, you, you see how he talks about all these other witnesses, and at the bottom in verse 11, jumping down there, he says, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. He's saying that there are no other accounts that everybody who has knowledge of this event agrees Jesus is risen. He's inviting them to investigate, to put it to the test. Why should we receive the whole gospel? It's because we need something real. We need reality. Now, we may say, that's good for those ancient people. It's good for the Corinthians that they could sit down, interview four or five people who said they saw Jesus we don't get to do that, right? We, we only get these written testimonies. Um, is there any reason for us to believe other than faith? Is Bertrand Russell right? Is Richard Dawkins right that faith is believing something even though there's no evidence? Well, um, we, we, I always make this offer. Uh, there's a doorstopper of a book by a guy named N.T. Wright called The Resurrection of the Son of God. He has collected 
all of the evidence for the resurrection, right? And he is the world's foremost New Testament scholar. If you can't afford it, we'll buy you a copy. We'll read it together. It'll be so fun. We'll become best friends. I'm not going to talk about everything in that book. I'm going to talk about just two things, two, two, two pieces of evidence um, that are present in the text here. First is Paul, Paul himself, and second is, is the, the church's testimony. Okay? Now, there's a lot more than this, all right? I'm just going to talk about two things. So what do we make of Paul? You know, for, first of all, like, what do you make of Paul inviting people to go investigate? Is, is this like a con man's bluff? If you'd like to verify it, go ahead and talk to the witnesses, right? This guy who's, like, facing torture, execution, all that stuff is actually a con man? Like, that, that's a big question is, what do you make of Paul? You may not know this, but there's a whole branch of study that are called Pauline studies. And even explaining how you got a Paul how you got this guy who was a persecutor of the church who became a proponent of the, of the Christian faith he was persecuting. How'd that happen? Uh, because it's not contested by any historian that Paul was a real person who was a persecutor, then became uh, a, a proponent of the gospel. The, the ex but the, the explanations, and I just read this, I'm reading this book that's unrelated, but this guy who's a professional historian is drawing on sort of the skeptical scholars, and here's what they say. They say Paul invented Christianity for power. That Paul saw an opportunity for power, so he made up all this mythological stuff about a historical person named Jesus. Okay, I, I'm not kidding. You don't believe me. Please go, go look up what, what some of these Pauline studies scholars say. Like, does that work? Imagine this. For power. What was Paul before? He was a Pharisee, right? He was well-respected in his community. He, he had letters from the high priest. He was in good with the high priest and the Roman government, going around wielding power of persecution and execution over these powerless minority folk Christians. And how did this power move work out from Paul? He went from a rising star to homeless, Stoned and left for dead a couple of times, shipwrecked, poor, reviled, and eventually imprisoned and executed. That's anybody else trying to grab power like that? I don't think so, right? The, 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 the best explanation is that what Paul tells us happened, happened. That he had, don't worry about that. That's all. Oh, or something. <laughs> um, is that what Paul tells us happened actually happened? That he had an encounter. Now, some people say, well, he had a hallucination. That's a better explanation than the power one, right? But that's a heck of a hallucination, a heck of one. Um, and then there's the church's testimony, okay? So I'm going to tell you a few things that are totally uncontested by all historians, secular or Christian. One is that there was a person named Jesus who was a traveling rabbi who was then executed by crucifixion. That much is totally uncontested, okay? Also uncontested is that after his crucifixion, 
this failed Messiah's following grew, and they got excited for some reason, okay? And they went around saying, you need to follow Jesus too. Okay, that much all historians agree on. Now, that does seem odd if you have a crucified Messiah that their following grows after their crucifixion because there had been, there were uh, the Simeon Barjona, never mind. Um, Like, there had been many other attempted messiahs who got executed, and, and you know what happens to their following? It dissipates. But with this one Jesus, his following grew and got excited. Why is that? We also know that at some point they began proclaiming he is risen, that Jesus is not dead but risen again. So far, we are in agreement with all historians, skeptical or otherwise. Now, how did the church come to to grow and also say that he's risen? Well, the skeptical explanation, there have been a few. One is is that he never really died. He just passed out and then was able somehow to push a boulder after being mostly dead. Um, And then another is mass hallucination. The the working scholarly one right now is that it's, um, it's, it's wishful thinking that his followers were so crestfallen after his death, they sat around saying, I wish he wasn't dead. And over time, that grew to he's risen. And then after that, it became like this whole myth and you get the gospel stories that we have, right? Like, like it went from, we wish he wasn't dead, he's not really dead, even though we know he is, to, hey, we've, we, we're gonna make up stories about how people saw him, all right? So that's the current thing. That's the current explanation. And, and it used to be that skeptical scholars would say, um, you know, the Gospels, because you need time for this to develop, they were written in like the 200s and 300s. I mean, the, the 100s and 200s, the, the second and third century. Y'all following me? Okay. And, and then they would say, you know, these aren't eyewitness accounts, so you can't really trust them. They came hundreds of years later. In fact, uh, Richard Dawkins just put out another book of why you shouldn't believe in God, and he makes this exact argument. The only problem is that that 200s and 300s, or or second and third century thing, they've had to back that up. You know why? They found manuscripts that were older than that of the Gospels, and they're like, oh, well, maybe, maybe second century, and then, and then they found stuff earlier than that. They're like, oh, okay, so about 40 or 50 years after the life of Jesus. And Dawkins still says, these were 40 or 50 years after the life of Jesus. You can't trust him. You'd forget all about it. Okay. I, 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 so follow me on this. I thought, what if we treated other historic events the same, with the same level of skepticism as the resurrection is treated, right, by skeptical historians and scholars? For instance, in 1962, Something happened that has never happened before and never happened since, which technically, by, by historical standards, that means it couldn't have happened. They literally say that. If it never happened before and hasn't happened since, doubt that it happened. So you know what happened? A guy named Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in an NBA game. There we go. There's Wilt still. Okay? And here's the thing is NBA games were televised at this time, but this one wasn't. In fact, there's no recording of it at all. 
do you know what all the evidence we have that this happened, that the stilt dropped 100 on some poor people, <laughs> is this picture and the eyewitness accounts of people who were there. The same exact sort of evidence we have for the resurrection. Now, it's 60 years ago now, right? Am I doing that math right? It's about 60 years ago, right? And so if we were to go and interview people, there's probably some people still alive who saw the stilt drop this. And, and, and we go to them and we say, well, whatever they say now is 60 years later. Surely they don't remember it, that they saw this happen. That doesn't work, does it? No, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Wilt Chamberlain scored 100. In fact, they had to stop the game. He could have had more because they were just killing the other team and the ref like felt sorry for the losing team. <laughs> okay? Here's the thing. The, the exact evidence you would hope to have for a historical event, eyewitness accounts of people who claim to be there, we could lose the stilt now, are exactly what we do have. And, and the whole claim that this, the claim that the church didn't believe Jesus had risen until later, what if I told you that we have a verified, authentic document from the first 20 years of the church after the life of Jesus that says he's risen? Would that blow up this whole idea that wishful thinking over time became the resurrection? Would that blow it up, do you think? 18 years or so after the life of Jesus, we find Christians saying he is risen. Well, we're holding it. The book of 1 Corinthians is uncontested by all scholars that it really was written by Paul within about 20 years of the life of Jesus, and here he says he is risen. Okay? What's the best explanation for why this group of people got excited that they, were, that they and Paul were willing to go to their deaths? It's because they saw him. Now, you may say, well, I don't care what the eyewitness evidence says. It's just impossible that a man would rise from the dead, all right? Well, now we're believing something without evidence, right? There is no, like, that's not, that's not working with the evidence. That's denying the evidence, right? That is a faith commitment in and of itself that resurrection is impossible, is it not? We need to receive the whole gospel. Why? Because we need God. We need salvation and we need reality. We need something real to base our lives on. For us, are there parts of the gospel we resist? Are there parts that are just too hard to accept? Yeah, I'm good with the God, I'm good with God existing, but like the whole miraculous thing, I hear you. It's hard. That's why so much of the New Testament is trying to convince us of the reality of it. And they were trying to convince, like the writers of the New Testament were trying to convince people who would have to go be persecuted for believing it. Okay? But we, we need to repent of where we're holding out. Of where we're saying, I refuse to believe that my guilt in sin is so bad that Jesus had to die for me. It's not because God is like you better, but because, remember, we don't get the benefit of the message if we don't receive it. God doesn't want us to live without a solution to sin and death. He wants each of us to receive that solution. He doesn't want any of us to feel like we're orphans in the universe and have to call out on the collection of all space and matter instead of our Father who loves us and cares for us. 
and is with us at the bedside of, some, of, of a loved one who's sick, who's with us in our lowest moments, who knows when the sparrow falls from the tree. And, and for those of us who have said yes to the entirety of the gospel, like we need to remember it. We need to receive it again and again. We need to be told again and again that your salvation, you rising up just like Jesus did, does not depend on you proving yourself worthy. That God's love for you does not increase or decrease based on your performance or your service to him. That he loves you as a child. that the same grace that was given to Paul, this self-described wretched man, and God loved and used and redeemed him is available to you. If we're holding out and refusing to believe it, God is calling us to receive his good news. Those of us who forget it, again, receive the gospel. Let's pray.